Uh, Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. As many of you know by now, I have a a keen interest and maybe to some degree to a degree that's too much in political issues. And I have watched very closely uh, for the last month or so the things going on in the Ukraine and Russia and all of that. And um, every time I read about it, I just think, no, <laughs> let's just stop. This is, uh, this is too much. And the verse that keeps coming to mind is uh, Matthew 5, uh, verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. This is not a verse that's... New to me is is one that I took very seriously for many years and still do. As I began to look at that verse more and more over the last week or so, a couple of things kept coming out to me. One is that um, it's a peacemaker. It requires some type of effort. Sometimes we think of peace as being something that is or isn't, but in this case it's talking about making peace. That means there's some type of effort involved with it. And so as I began to study that verse more and more, I kept backing up to the previous verses and jumping down the latter ones and really couldn't get quite settled. So we're going to look at the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5 this morning. And I'll emphasize verse 9 in a minute when we get there. But I just couldn't break them apart today. So let me read Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 1 through the verse 12. So seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, many of you will know this, and is often titled, and is in my scriptures, the Beatitudes. And I've heard these from when I was a young child. And I always kind of wondered what it meant to, why is it a beatitude? It's kind of an interesting phrase. So I looked it up and it comes from a Latin phrase, which means to be blessed and to be happy. So it's a, a two meaning, to be blessed and to be happy. And if you look at this, every time there's talking about a blessing, there's something that follows it up afterwards, right? So it begins with blessed are the poor in spirit. And then it says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So there's two things which eat with each of these. And so we're going to look just briefly. I could very likely spend an entire service over each one of these, but I think we'll just do kind of an overview today. Blessed and happiness. Now, many of these things, we might run down the list and say, I don't know that I like some of those very much. Blessed are those who mourn. Who likes to mourn? 
Blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty, and so on and so forth. And so it's easy to look at this list and go, well, I'm not really sure I'm up for that. But maybe there's a better way to look at these things. Maybe, and I think is correctly, to look at these from a spiritual perspective. And I think that's what we want to do today. So remember, Christ is teaching his disciples. He was uh, teaching many people. And then he kind of pulls a group aside. And so he begins teaching his disciples. We see that uh, in verse 1 and 2. And he pulls a small group aside and begins to teach them about the kingdom of heaven and about what it's like. And about the characteristics, if you will, of true servants of God. And he talks about both the present reward and, in a few cases, the future reward. And in some cases, both present and future rewards. So let's begin with the first blessed that he talks about in verse 3. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's very specific here. It doesn't just say, blessed are the poor, stop. It says poor in spirit. And so while this may include those who are financially poor or destitute or something of that nature, it's specifically talking about those who are poor in spirit. So this, again, is a spiritual issue, not just a financial state. And when we talk about being poor in spirit, we're talking about someone who recognizes that they are poor in spirit toward God, meaning they have nothing to offer God. And when we think about our spiritual state before we were saved, we had nothing to give to God. If God is all that there is, if he's master over all, creator over all, completely holy, then what do I have to give to him? And the answer is nothing. See, I am poor that way. I have nothing to give to God to earn my salvation, to earn my forgiveness. It is all based on his grace and his mercy. And so I have a poor spirit that way and that I must come before him recognizing that I cannot earn my status before him, that I have nothing that I have done that is going to get me into heaven, but it is by faith through his grace that I am able to come to know him. So we have to come and admit and recognize that we are spiritually bankrupt, if you will, that I cannot earn my way into heaven. The only way that I can do this is to know him. And when I finally come to that point, when we are, as we say today, saved, when we are forgiven our sins, when we come before him humbly and confess and ask for him to save us, that is the point at which we are saved and we receive at that point the kingdom of heaven. We become his sons, his heirs to the kingdom. And when he forgives us at that first point of salvation, we are then entitled to the kingdom of heaven. And not just later, but as you'll see, it's present tense, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you have been saved, the day and time and moment that you received Jesus, that you finally put yourself aside and came to him and said, Lord, I have nothing to give you, but I know that I need you. And he saved your soul. That is the moment that you inherited the kingdom of heaven. And someday, whenever this life is over, I will then spiritually go on to heaven. But it's still mine now. You see, this is a present and a future that is given here. 
And so it makes perfect sense that we would begin looking at these things, at the happy and blissful state that we can have, and the things that we are in Christ by understanding that we first must be saved. And to do that, we must be poor in spirit. If you were at the youth night, Friday night, Brother Jason talked about this in a slightly different way, but it means the same thing, coming humbly before God. And we have to start there. Many of us refuse to do that. Many of us want to bring something and somehow earn it, but it doesn't work that way. And so we must come to him in a poor spirit. The next one talks about blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now, this is used many times when we do mourn something that we've lost, often when we've lost a loved one. And there's no, nothing wrong with thinking about it that way. But it goes much deeper than that, I think. Again, if we think about this from a spiritual perspective, this is not just saying blessed are those who are mourning because they've lost a friend or a relative or because they've lost a job or because they've lost a career or any number of things that we can mourn over. I think it's more than just the missed opportunity or a family death. It's very likely talking about us mourning over what? Our sin. See, again, if you go and start looking at these in orders, first we are and must recognize that we are poor in spirit. But after we are saved, we must mourn over our continued sin. You see, when we are saved, we are set free from the penalty of sin, but we are still under sin. In that we will still continue to do things that are wrong. We will still continue to violate the law. We will still continue to do things that we shouldn't do. We will still continue to have those desires, those impulses that we should not have. But the key to living the Christian life, to walking with Lord, is not just to ignore those things or to engage in those things, but to be sorry and mourn for those going to the Lord asking for his help. And so we are experiencing deep grief over the sin that is in our lives. 2 Corinthians 1.4 says, Who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort from which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now that's a lot of comforts in one verse. And I think what this is trying to tell us is that we who are in sin should be mourning this fact that we're there, trying to live a better life with God's help. And God is going to comfort us and help us in those situations. When we sin, we must mourn over it and expect to receive comfort from the Spirit. Let me read a couple other verses that are related. Proverbs 28 and 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So let me just make this abundantly clear. If you have been saved, and if you continue in some type of sin, it is our duty to be remorseful and mourn over our activities, to go to God and to confess those sins and ask Him to help us to not continue living that way. And if we just continue to ignore and say, well, I do this and it's wrong over here, but I don't care. No one knows. No one sees it. We're going to end up having a problem. And instead, we are instructed to mourn over those sins and things that we do and to seek to obtain mercy. 
Isaiah 66 and 2 says, But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. See, brothers and sisters, we should be engaged in the word of God and listening to the spirit of God who is given to all of those who are saved. And we should confront our fallenness with God's help. And when we find sin in our lives, we should mourn, we should repent, and we should seek the comfort that the Holy Spirit can gives us, the Holy Spirit does give us to overcome it. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces great repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so we need to remember that we need to be poor in spirit, knowing that we are bankrupt before God. And that after we are saved, that we must mourn, that we continue in sin and seek the comfort that comes from the Holy Spirit, helping to lift us out of the sin we find ourselves entangled in. And so we see truly blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Verse 5 talks about the meek. This is a word we don't use very often. In our current language today. And even when we do, it probably has some kind of negative connotation to it. So verse 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is a mildness or a gentleness in spirit. And specifically, we talk about it spiritually, a humility toward God and to others. It doesn't mean that you're a pushover. Right? It doesn't mean that you just let everyone walk all over you. That might be the way that we often think of it today. But in fact, it can kind of mean the opposite. Often meekness is involved with someone who has a power and authority, but then chooses not to use it. We see a couple of examples with this. For example, Numbers 12 and 3 says about Moses, he was very meek more than all the people on the face of the earth. Now you look at Moses. Moses was appointed by God to be a leader of a million or more people to take them out of bondage, to guide them through the desert, to get them to the promised land. And he did this for a long span of time and was the person who was in charge. So Moses, second to God, had the authority to do whatever he wanted to do and to command and do and tell the people what he could do. He had great authority, great privilege, and great power. Yet the Bible says that he was meek, that he didn't lord it over other people unnecessarily. This is what gets us worked up sometimes maybe in our jobs or other places where we have someone who is elevated to a position of authority and they rule it over you in a negative way. And this is not to say we agree with everything that someone who has some authority does or doesn't do over us, but, but everybody knows somebody who's taken this too far. So when we think about being meek, we think about being mild and gentle. We think about having the right and the power to do something, but perhaps refraining from it to giving mercy, if you will. Christ is also an incredible model of this. But Christ himself was not a pushover. In fact, he very clearly confronted in a very strong way everything people thought about him and about the law. He didn't mince his words, but he also wasn't cruel. He could have, as the scripture clearly tells us, called down thousands of angels to protect him. But instead, he was meek 
and that he did what God wanted him to do. He took on my suffering and my shame. And so we, as people who call ourselves Christians to be Christ-like, should also be meek. We should be ones who are not pushovers, but are giving blessings to other people, that we should be patient with other people, that we should be kind with those who are around us and seek to be those who are meek so that we can inherit the earth, as this tells us. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I think this second part, inheriting the earth, is important for this one. Because in our uh, personal lives, we somehow think that if I don't make this happen, if I don't force it to be done this way, if I don't make someone bend to my will, then I'm going to lose ground in this game we're calling life. But the reality is, we turn to the very end, who wins? Jesus Christ. So whether I lose an argument... Whether I lose my point, whether I lose a battle, we can have confidence knowing that we are to be meek because eventually we what? We inherit the earth with Christ. And so even if I lose what I think is the important thing down here, ultimately we win because we inherit the earth. The very end, Revelation 21, 7 says, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God. Maybe this one is very difficult for me sometimes, but maybe I need to be reminded more often that, yeah, I could probably win that argument. I could probably force that to happen in certain circumstances at work or even at church sometimes. But the reality is I should be meek like Christ is. I should state the truth, never run from that. But I should be kind and gentle and understand that in the end, even if I don't think I'm winning now, I will eventually inherit the earth. We'll continue on. Blessed are those who are hunger, hungry and thirst for righteousness. Again, you could read this and think, well, blessed are those who are hungry and those who are thirsty. But we see that this has a spiritual context to it for righteousness. Now, as I pointed out before, we do not understand in this country what it means to be hungry and thirsty. We just have no idea. And if you've ever listened to someone who has really, truly experienced hunger or thirst, you won't soon forget how they describe it. And so what this is saying is, blessed are those who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. And that hunger and thirst, it really comes down to the deepest craving that we can possibly have. Eventually, when you're hungry and thirsty, nothing else matters. It doesn't matter anymore. The only thing that matters is a sip of water or a bite of food. And righteousness represents that right relationship that we have with God and with God's people. So when we talk about hungering and thirsty for righteousness, we are talking about people who are desperate, if you will, for the spiritual blessings that come as a result of following after him, being righteous. So we are so desperate that we will do anything to be right with God, to follow after his commands, that we'll set everything else aside just for a bit of him. 
This is what it means. We talk about those are blessed because they hunger and they thirst for righteousness, for God. And it says here, they shall be satisfied. They shall be full. Now, I've mentioned in the last few weeks and repeatedly for quite a while, it seems like, our world today tries everything to find satisfaction in things that are not spiritual. We try to fill ourselves with our status. We try to fill ourselves with work, with money, with friendships, whatever it is in this world. We try to fill ourselves because we are hungry and thirsty. But what we fail to realize is the only thing that truly satisfies, as this verse says, is the righteousness that comes from God, seeking after him. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So the question we can all ask ourselves is, are you satisfied? Are you full? To be satisfied means you're no longer hungry or thirsty. And from an earthly perspective, we know that that only lasts so long, right? Because... Well, we use the food and the water, and the next day we're hungry and need more. But from a spiritual perspective, whether we're talking about the water that never ends, right, that Christ gave to the woman at the well, there is a spiritual fountain, the Spirit of God, that will live inside of believers, that will well up inside of us so that we are no longer thirsty and hungry for anything but what He has to offer. But just like we do in this country, we fill ourselves with all kinds of junk that doesn't last, and we're hungry again. And if you've ever researched the food that we eat, you'll see that's what it's made out of. All it does is leave you wanting more. So the question really is, are you full and are you seeking God's righteousness? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy is to show forgiveness and compassion to those who are in need without expecting anything back. And you also notice, (coughs) mercy begets mercy. When we give mercy to those who need it, what happens to us? We get mercy. This one's a little bit different than the rest of them because when we show other people mercy, we will receive mercy in the same way. Now, this is probably an easy example that we've had before. Perhaps you've had a friend that you've lent something to or helped them out in a certain way. And what comes around oftentimes later is they will be merciful back to you. They will provide that back. That's not because I gave them something that I expected it back. That's not mercy and grace. That's lending something. This is different. But what we see is this is true spiritually as well, that when we are merciful, when we are giving forgiveness and compassion to those who are around us, we will receive those things back. So if you want mercy from others in your life, you should live a merciful life to others. Now, again, this doesn't mean that you're a pushover. But what it does mean and what it should mean is to remind us that we received mercy from God, but not because we deserved it. 
we received his mercy. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does it mean to be pure and specifically to have a pure heart? It means that you are clean and blameless, that you are unstained from guilt, that you have been declared innocent, again, going back to that first one, not because of what you did, but because of what Christ did as a finished work to forgive you. Blessed are the pure in heart. It also involves this idea that we don't have a, uh, a, a split tug of war between us. As Brother Jason mentioned to the youth on Friday night, he used the phrase that was somewhat at least humorous to me, but a really good one. Are you just in a dating relationship with God or are you in a serious relationship? Now that can seem kind of flippant, but I think it has a lot of context. We can just be on the edges, kind of playing around a little bit. Well, yeah, I know you, and I come to church every once in a while, and I do this, and I do that. Are you serious about it? Are you really pure in heart? Is your intention to have a singleness of mind and heart to God? Or are you living a life full of hypocrisy? And to some degree, we're all hypocritical, aren't we? Clearly, we all say and know the right thing, but we don't do the right thing. That goes back to a couple previous verses where we talk about making sure that we live a life that is called according to those uh, principles that Christ has set out. We will never be perfect, which is why we should feel that pull to mourn over the sin that we have. But our effort should be to have a pure heart to have an uncompromising desire to love God with all of our heart, our soul, our strength, and our might. This is vitally important and one of the key ways that we know that, in fact, we are the children of God. And turn with me, if you want, for just a minute to 1 John. I'm going to read chapter 3, 1 John chapter 3, the first three verses. See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is giving us an example of what it means to, to understand purity and to desire purity. We are not there yet, but we will be. And the desire of our lives ought to be to live a pure and sinless life as best as we possibly can, Knowing that the world is going to hate us for that, but continuing steadfast in our lives until we are like him. And when he comes to get us all, we finally know what it's like to be pure. And until that time, our effort is to be as pure as heart as we possibly can be. Now that's different from salvation. I want to make sure I make that very clean as I 
pointed out, just living a clean life doesn't get you saved. Your faith in God and His grace and mercy and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is what gives you salvation. Yet we should be trying to live a pure life so that we can see God. Now as I open this, brings us to our last one. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now I want to point out, as I've kind of mentioned, that these kind of go in order to some degree. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You must be poor in spirit. You must recognize that and seek God for salvation before the rest of these work. You should be pure in your living before you go out and try to be a peacemaker. Or you won't be very successful. Peace. Shalom. That's the Hebrew word calls it. means what we think of as peace, but it's deeper than that. It means that there is a completeness and a wholeness. A completeness and a wholeness in our lives. It's not just the knowledge of peace, but it's actually making peace. It's actually understanding that when something comes between me and a brother or sister or me and a non-believer, that I make an effort to make peace completeness and wholeness between us because we know that if there is something against another person it can that conflict can destroy everything else in a relationship whether it be one in the family whether it be one in the church whether it be one in the workplace and so those of us who know the peace of God who are guided by it who understand the mercy, who understand the desire and the hunger and the thirst for righteousness, we should be making an effort to be peace between all of us. But there's a deeper meaning, I think, here. This word, peacemaker, occurs in one other place in the New Testament. Colossians 1.20. Colossians 1.20. And it reads as follows, and I'll emphasize it. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made, there it is, peace through the blood of His cross. And so when we think about being a peacemaker, when it says that blessed are the peacemakers, let us remember that the peacemaker is Jesus Christ because he stood in the place and he took my sacrifice. He took my sins and sacrificed himself rather so that I could have a relationship with God. And we go all the way back to the beginning of this passage. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You see, I couldn't get to God because of my sins. But Jesus Christ, as the peacemaker, stepped in between, laid himself on a cross willingly, taking upon my sin so that I could be made right with God. He is the peacemaker. He is the prince of peace. And we are called to be similar. Now, I can't stand in the gap for someone else. I do not have the power to take on someone's sins and forgive them of anything. But what I do have is to do what Jesus Christ is doing and calling others to believe in him. The ultimate status of a peacemaker, the ultimate peace that you could make is to help someone who was lost find Jesus who is the peacemaker. I said this before a couple weeks ago. You want 
a better government? People need to be saved in the government. They need to meet the peacemaker. You want a better work environment than your boss and your colleagues and those who are around you need to know Jesus Christ and to be transformed by him, the great peacemaker. You want better friends at school? You need to have your friends understand who the peacemaker is. And when you, as an individual, lives in this world and tells others about Jesus Christ, you are making the greatest peace you could possibly ever have that completeness, and that wholeness. And when someone comes to know God, the Bible tells us that there is a peace that passes all understanding. How many of you, when you tell your testimony of the moment that the Lord saved you, include something about peace? There is just something, like, different. The weight of your sin, like, lifted off of you. And you felt a peace, a wholeness, and a completeness that you've never felt before. And that is the Spirit of God resting on you. So blessed are the peacemakers. It's wonderful to make peace physically. Some of us, that's in more of our nature than others. To step in between two who are arguing and say, whoa, let's stop. It'd be wonderful if someone can appear and make peace as we see it around the world today. I would love for that to happen. But you know, the greater thing that could happen is for those of us who have been redeemed, who've been saved, to share the great news about making peace with the world who desperately needs to hear it. And so we go down this list. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is those who mourn over their sin, for they shall be comforted when you are sinning. Blessed are the meek, for you will inherit the earth. Don't worry about what other people are going to do. We win in the end. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Are you hungry and are you thirsty for something? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Are you giving mercy to others? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Are your actions pure? Are you double-minded, as the scripture says? And then finally, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. That's what we do when we receive salvation. I've mentioned this before, but a few years ago, I remember there were two young girls who were praying during the altar call. One of them had been praying for some time, as in repeatedly for months, maybe a couple years, wanting to get saved. And I remember the moment that it happened because she stood up and she had a smile and a peace about her that I'd never seen in her face before. And she looked around with great, tremendous joy. And I think most of us could look at her and know what likely just happened. And then a moment later she realized her friend was still praying. And her desire was to be a peacemaker, so she got back on her knees to pray for her friend so that she could be saved as well. See, that is the power of what I'm talking about. The desire for us to be peacemakers is more than just in this world. It's to make disciples. It's to be fishers of men. It's to share with them the peace that passes all understanding. And that is salvation in God. But that's not the end, so let me summarize with this. 
It goes on because it gives us some warnings too. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We are given a warning and a reminder and a beautiful image. When we live out the life that these seven Beatitudes have given us, when we're poor in spirit, when we mourn, when we are meek, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, when we are merciful, when we are pure of heart, when we are peacemakers, the world is going to hate us. It is going to persecute us. It won't want anything to do with us. Why? Because we don't look like the world. We don't fit that mold. Maybe you remember that from a few weeks ago. But that's okay because we're not called to look like the rest of the world. We should and should look different and we are different. When we live these seven Beatitudes, we look like the opposite of the world and as such become the enemies of the world. But let us never forget that theirs, ours, is the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't matter how much people hate us here. All that matters is, are we doing these things? Will we see the kingdom of God? We can be hated. We can be picked on. We can be put to death even. And for thousands of years, this has been going on. And when Christ spoke these words, he reminded them, hey, even the prophets of old, this was going on. I'm not standing here today telling you anything new for the last thousands of years. These truths have been are and will be and it is simply our duty to follow them as best as we can and when we are persecuted falsely we should rejoice and be glad that doesn't sound very comforting does it to rejoice and be glad what do we have to rejoice in because our reward is great in heaven I think we often have a misunderstanding of heaven sometimes. I think the Bible has some clear indication that there will be rewards in heaven for how well we do here on earth. If you are saved by God's grace, then you will live eternally with him. But for those of us who are here today who have received that forgiveness, my question to you, my pleading to you is, do you follow these seven other things? Are you living the life worthy of the one who called you out of darkness? Because if you are, the world's not going to like you. But that's okay because the reward that you will receive for living properly will last forever. It is both present now and a promise in the future. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For they shall be comforted. For they shall inherit the earth. For they shall be satisfied. For they shall receive mercy. For they shall see God. And for they shall be called the sons of God. And then we wrap it all up in verse 10. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Which kingdom 
do you belong to? Which kingdom are you serving? What is your beatitude today? Are you happy and blessed for the things that you do?